This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So we want to think about personal relationship with the persons of the Trinity and the way to establish and maintain a relationship with another person is to communicate with that person. In the case of God, this means addressing the distinct persons, right? Praying to the distinct persons. Now, if you look on the internet, you can find novenas and litanies to each of the three persons, right? To the Father, to the Son, or to the Holy Spirit. And that's certainly recommended. That's how you would foster a relationship with each person of the Trinity. But you didn't need me to come out here and tell you that. You, you surely already knew that, even if you weren't thinking about it so in, intentionally. And so what I wish to do is to lead you to a deeper reflection on the distinct personalities of each person so that when you pray these novenas, these litanies, your own personal spontaneous prayer, you might have a richer insight into the personality of the person you address. Because God's way of being infinitely exceeds our experience of being, it's difficult to talk about the Trinity. But because we have received the revelation of the Trinity from Jesus Christ, our Savior, we must speak of the Trinity. We must speak of the divine persons. And it's an immense privilege to do so, to address God in his distinction of persons. It would be of little value for me to tell you what you already know or could discover without too much effort. So to be of more significant service to you, I hope, I will lead you on a somewhat steep theological climb, not to a sheer cliff that you, you can't scale, but, but to move from simplistic accounts to a more robust understanding of God the Trinity. And that might challenge you a little, but that's good. It makes for good exercise. And I, I noticed there are a couple of students here from the House of Studies, so for you it might be less of a steep climb, but more of a review. But review with the Trinity is always good, even if you're looking at it a second time, a third time, or 33rd time. As I know from studying for, for many years, you, when it comes to the Trinity, you're always a student. Even with a beatific vision, that will, that will, you could say that will be the case. So I'll stop at several points to take questions along the way. I think that would be more practical. Uh, more open-ended questions we can leave to the end, but questions of clarification would be better addressed immediately. And I, it's sort of, in the, in, the, in the church, it's different from a classroom setting, so maybe you won't be inclined so much to do that. That's fine. Well, we can save all the questions to the end, but I'll invite questions for along the way at, at a couple points. If you look at your outline, you can see that I will first say a few words about the nature of a personal relationship. Then we'll think about the persons of the Trinity. And in the second and longer section, we'll first work on a scriptural analogy for the Trinity, the analogy of the word and love. Something that really should be taught in every catechism curriculum, but it's maybe not the easiest, so maybe that's why it's not there. So in here, our acts of knowing and loving acts of the soul, can offer us the best analogy for understanding the Son and the Holy Spirit in their distinct personalities. And then 
Last, we can think about the divine missions, that is the sending of the Son and the Holy Spirit into the world. Jesus says repeatedly that he is sent by the Father, and he says that he and the Father send the Holy Spirit to us. Right, so that's, that's what the missions refer to, ascending. Okay, so number two on your outline, on the personal relationship. A personal relationship is naturally between persons. By relationship here, we're talking about a friendship. A person is a rational hypostasis, if I can use a technical term. You could say a rational individual substance, a rational thing, okay, a, an existing rational thing. So God, angels, human beings. A person is someone who can say I, right, I am. A person is a who, someone that we would refer to using the pronoun who. This is totally intuitive, but is not always easy to define. Now, why bother with this? Well, first of all, this explains why you cannot have a friendship, properly speaking, with an animal, even if you really like your pet. You can have an important relationship with an animal. An animal can save your life, right? Especially if you like to have a, a seeing eye dog or something, that can be extremely important. But properly speaking, an animal is not capable of supporting a human friendship, since it's not rational. We refer to animal intelligence in an extended sense of the term, and, and animals can display impressive properties, but animals do not think in abstract universals, otherwise they would eventually be doing philosophy, right? And they're not, and they won't. And this is relevant to our question this evening because believing that we can be friends with God would be blasphemous were we not taught this by Christ, by God himself, to believe that we are called to be friends with God. But Christ does teach us to believe this. In fact, he commands us to become friends of God. We read in the Gospel of John, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now, why would the idea of friendship with God be blasphemous? Well, think of Uzzah from 2 Samuel chapter 6. They were driving the new cart with the Ark of God. Uzzah put out his hands to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there because he put forth his hand to the Ark, and he died there beside the Ark of God. He was, trying to do, he was trying to solve a problem, but you don't get too familiar with God or too close to God. Or how about Exodus 33? The Lord said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Right? So if a mere human gets too close to the infinite, omnipotent one, he dies. See? Even think of the different statuses among humans. Can a young child really be a friend with his teacher? I mean, maybe in extreme cases, but the age difference and professional boundary naturally impede this. And in fact, it can be unhealthy when the difference in the status is not respected. 
right? So parents to children or, or teachers to children. Or something less familiar to our age, especially to Americans, could be, you know, question would be, could you be friends with the king or the emperor? Not long ago, and maybe still today, I actually don't know culturally, maybe, maybe some of you know, in Japan and in Nepal, the emperor or the king spoke his own distinct language. And so if you were to speak to him, you'd speak through a translator. In fact, Father Ryan, who's going to be, I think you say here or at St. Peter's, he actually was in Nepal as, as a student, I, I, and he experienced this. So the, the king or the emperor wouldn't speak to a commoner in, in a common language, right? That would be beneath him, given his elevated status. Well, my goodness, how could we expect to speak to God and, and not offend him, right? We do this even... Not, not in the United States, but in, in other places, you see this clear stat, difference in status. You know, we have something to say to God, a word of praise or a word of request after our hypocrisy and infidelity. This is why Christ's invitation to be friends is an astonishing act of generosity, right? And even a controversial move. If an animal cannot support, support a human friendship, a human can certainly not support a divine friendship. We're sinners. And we could not love infinitely, even if we were not, in, not sinners. But in baptism, God does not only heal our intellects and wills, he also elevates them, making it possible for us to possess him as the object of our intellects and wills. That's, that's the claim. This is, this is, a, this is a, a colossal claim. That is our ordinary intellects and wills, which are proportioned to know corporeal beings, are strengthened to be able to know and love God. It's only with the assistance of grace that we're able to do this. According to Aquinas, a sign of friendship is the sharing of secrets and the things that one has. But we have no secrets from God. And everything we have came from God. So the inequality prevents the normal kind of friendship. How do you have a friendship with an infinite being? Only if that being assists you, or that is, transforms you through grace and has mercy on you in your weakness and imperfection. And God has indeed done that in Jesus Christ, the God-man and our Savior. Okay, next section on the outline. So. Uh, number three, how about the divine persons? So the only way we can have a, a relationship with the divine persons of the Trinity is to know who they are, right? That's straightforward enough. That means that we must know how they are distinct from each other. And this we only know from Scripture. Why? Because God is pure spirit and invisible to us. Without the help of revelation... Right, that is just by reason alone, our own reasoning, we can know God through his effects, namely what he does in the universe, because we see he acts in the universe. But this won't show us God in the distinction of persons. We could prove that God exists by reason alone. We could prove he's perfect, he's omnipotent, he's subsisting goodness, and so forth. But created beings... Creation doesn't have the ontological depth, the depth of being, to manifest 
God's personal distinction. God's manner of existence is so far above and so dissimilar to ours. We only know that God is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because Christ has revealed that to us, right? Friends reveal their secrets to each other. Now, one truth you must not lose track of when talking about the three persons is God's perfect unity. God has one intellect and one will. He is one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have one intellect and one will. Christians must affirm this no less than Jews or Muslims. The assertion that God is a communion of three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, does not affect God's perfect unity in the least. It's not an either-or. If the idea of three persons makes us lose track of the one God with one being, one divine essence, one life, one intellect, one will, then we've lost the Christian teaching. It's not an either-or. A non-Christian might think that, right, this isn't possible, you know, that the one God be a communion of three persons, but he should not think that Christians doubt that there's one God and that that God is perfectly one, okay? Now, keeping three and one together mentally is a challenge for us because there's, there's nothing like that in the created universe. Corporeal beings are individuated by matter. That is, different individuals can be of the same species. So, so two squirrels are the same kind of thing. They have the same essence, the philosophers would say, but they're not the same squirrel. Why? Because they have different matter. Right? One's here, one's there, and one's older, one's younger. They're individuated by matter. So in technical language, they have the same essence specifically, not numerically. Right? They have the same essence in the sense that they are the same species. So, same essence specifically, specifically from species. But they do not have the same essence in terms of being one same thing. They're, they're two different squirrels. So, it seems like, right, looking at you being used to seeing created things, it seems like the Father and the Son are either not distinct in the real order, right? they're just only in our minds or giving them different names for the same thing, or else they are distinct in the real order because they're not one same thing, right? Because that's how things are in, in the created order. But the revelation that Christ has imparted to us infirmed, affirms that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct in the real order and are one numerically same God. This is not against reason. In fact, the very source of reason itself has revealed himself to be a communion of three persons. We should be aware that our perspective is limited to our experience, right? So you think of like a toddler imagines that all other toddlers have a teddy bear just as he does, or a globe, yeah, you know, it's a globe in his room, well, he just, you know, that's, that's how everything is. To us mortals, God's Trinitarian manner of existence might seem just like, that's, that's, so, that's so bizarre to be like that. One God with three persons. But God might say to us, I'm normal. You're, you're the weirdos. I, I was here first, right? You with your individuation by matter, I mean, that's, that's weird. What's normal is to be one numerically same God with three distinct persons. 
Okay, does, does, does anyone want to ask a question about that? Please. Yeah, uh, I know this guy. He's a student. Yeah, Zachary. Okay, so he's so a person is a who, so he asked that that's right. And so each divine person is a who. There's there's one God, but each divine person says, I am, you could say, with more credibility than any of us. I mean, if you want to see a person like you you, you meet a, a human being, you're like, wow, okay, now I know what a person is. If you meet one of the divine persons, you're just like, now now that's a person, because like we're we're ready to fall into non-being. You know, we're, 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 we depend on God to keep us in being. So, so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit say, I, I am, with, more, with, the, with the greatest credibility. They're one, they're, they're, they're one God, one life, one essence, but they're more distinct, you could say, more really a person, more profoundly distinct than, than, than us or any angels. Right, we're, we're, we're like you know, you could, us compared to a piece of dust. It's like, well, I'm, I'm not just a piece of dust. I'm very different. But compared to, to God, right, in his distinction, between difference between me and non-existence, well, they're pretty close, actually, right? So, so that's, a, that's a good point. God's personhood, his personality, his distinctness in, in the Trinity, even so it, it, it stretches our imagination. But God's one perfectly numerically same God, it, the, the person's... Each one who is the divine essence is, in his distinction, is, is truly, really distinct. More distinct than we are, as I say, because we, we just, we, we have, um, our being is much shallower. So, yeah. Please, Jay. I don't understand how the same God that helps us, you cannot see my face and live, can also reveal himself to us. Very good. Okay, so how can God who says you can't see my face and live then reveal himself? So uh, one, he can reveal himself not completely, right? So, so in, a, in a more gentle way, say in the Old Testament, through signs especially, and then a more complete revelation could come and also when we can be adapted to see God face to face. So, um, so that would be it. That, that he wouldn't, so, so first... Uh, he doesn't like simply show himself uh, it, it to, so first he calls the people to himself in, in the old covenant. And then he sends himself also, he sends himself, the, he said the father sends the son in human flesh. So we see his face, right? Is it St. Paul or is it Hebrew said, right? right the, the, uh, what is it like the, the light of the father shining on the face of Christ or Christ is, is, is transparent to the father. So you see God in the flesh, but still you don't see the divine essence unmediated, right? Which, according to the Old Testament, would, would kill you. It would be it would just, you, 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 you couldn't survive it. And yet the, the promise in is very interesting, just as you point to, the, the promise that Christ gives us is then you will come to see. You will, you will, that will actually be through Christ, you actually will come to see the face of God and live. So, but I'd say, but to, to answer your question specifically, how can you... Um, receive any revelation, well, uh, through signs and also through prophecy, 
and through Christ's humanity, which is God in his generosity and kindness speaks to us in a human language so that we don't, so it doesn't kill us, if you want to say, to be extreme. <laughs> but, but it's a scriptural language, so. Okay, what's, what's the difference between the divine essence and the face of Christ? And then how does that affect us personally? God, so Jesus is the God-man. So he, when he says I, it's the divine son who says I. There's not, it's not like a, a, a human being who's like really close to the son. It's the son with a human nature. There's only one person. It's not, it's not a human person plus a divine person. Christ is not a human person. He's only a divine person. That gets to, to Zachary's question also. So you, there's only one I there, one who says I, the divine son. But he has a human nature, so eternally a divine nature, and he takes on a human nature to himself. So this is why on the cross, when he thirsts and, and when, he, he, when he dies and says, I thirst, God the son says, I thirst, and God the son dies. Only in his human nature, because he can't thirst in his divine nature. He has, he's perfect and unchanging, has everything. Okay, but so because he takes on a human nature, we can see God the Son's human nature, which is like seeing, an, uh, seeing each other. I mean, it's, it's a human nature. So, so it's not seeing the divine essence, which is invisible to the human eye and, and above the human intellect, but which, which we can, as shockingly through Christ, receive a gift the, you know, when we, when we die, to, to see the, the divine essence with our intellects directly. All right, good enough for now. Please. So, Excellent. No, that's, that's a great question. Is there a hierarchy in the Trinity? No. The Son is totally, they're one, they have one intellect and one will. There's only order. As St. Thomas says, there's an order without priority. The Son comes from the Father. The Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. But no hierarchy, no superiority. That, that's, an important, that's very important. That's one of the, the heresies that's, that's uh, uh, ruled out. So this is what stretches our mind. But yes, the, the, there is an order without priority. It's, it's, that's, yeah, that's non-negotiable. Okay, good. We can, we can we'll have more time at the end also. So let me, let me continue. Okay, so how do we know that there is a Father, a Son, and the Holy Spirit? Jesus tells us that this is so in the Gospels. So John 16, 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Okay, so there, there's a Father and a Son, and they're not the same person. And in John 14, 26, we read, But the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, 
He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay, so there's a Holy Spirit, and he's not the same person as the Father or the Son. Now, how do we know that they're all one same God? So this is not an easy question, and, and the early church struggled to articulate this. But recall, so Thomas the Apostle says to Jesus, my Lord and my God, right? So that's John 20, 28. And in John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. In John 16, 15, he says, all that the Father has is mine. And in John 5, 19, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he does, that the Son does likewise. Also, Jesus forgives sins and raises people from the dead, which only God has the power to do. The Holy Spirit, too, has the power to forgive sins. John 20, 22, uh, in John 20, 22, Jesus breathed on the disciples and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. And how about Matthew 12, 31? Also in the other Gospels, Mark chapter 3 and Luke chapter 12, Jesus teaches that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Okay, if blaspheming the Holy Spirit is an infinite and unforgivable sin, well, sounds like the Holy Spirit's God. So, if the three persons in the Trinity are co-equally God, and yet they're distinct in the real order, how can we know what their personalities are? Well, from Scripture, of course. But this may not always be so straightforward because sometimes the same attributes are ascribed to distinct persons. So that's, that's confusing, right? So, for instance, John 1.14 reveals that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. You think, oh, okay, so grace and truth go, go with the Word. That's, I got that. But then in John 15.26, we hear of the Spirit of truth. It's like, wait a minute, well, I thought the word was truth. Okay, so the spirit's also of the truth. And in Hebrews 10, 29, we hear of the spirit of grace, right? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who has outraged the spirit of grace? Okay, so we need, we need some help with this. This brings us to, I have 3A on the outline, the analogy of the word and love. And if this is all we do tonight, this will be, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth your money. <laughs> all right. Because this is, this is a, a brilliant analogy um, to, to help us sort this out. So Aquinas develops this. This is taken from Scripture. Augustine has it, and Aquinas advances it. When I first learned this analogy, I wondered, how is it possible that nobody taught me this before? It, it just Because it's uniquely important to come to some grasp of the Trinity. I just thought, I mean... Yeah, Aquinas thought that was, it's, it's really the only thing that will, will give you some per intellectual purchase on this mystery. So I, I present it to you. The analogy is also sometimes called the psychological analogy, not in the sense of modern psychology, but because it appeals to the soul, psuche, right? So psychological. The soul is an analogy for the Trinity. But the better, the better name, I would say, is, is the analogy of the word and love. So, what scriptural passages give rise to this analogy? Well, John 1, 1 through 3, 
and John 4, 7 and 8, and 12 and 13. In John 1, 1 through 3, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Okay, so that we have the word there. And then John, first letter of John 4, 7 and 8 reads, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And he who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. No man has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his own spirit. Okay, so we have the word and we have the spirit there. The word uh, connected with this, this, the knowledge, this, this yeah, burst of knowledge, and the, the spirit with love. You could also add Romans 5.5. 5. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which he has given us. So yes, the word is associated with the Son, we see here, and love is associated with the Holy Spirit. So we will have to think about these two immaterial powers of the soul, the intellect and the will. That's going to give us some insight. The intellect produces words or concepts, ideas, and the will produce, what does the will produce? Impulses of love. So let's, we can talk about that. So first, regarding the intellect, we have to think about what a word is. In common usage, a word refers to vocal, audible words. Right, I've been using them for how long here? 40 minutes now. But underneath vocal words are concepts, ideas. We use vocal words as signs to point to realities, right? Because it's much easier to say the word dog than to carry a dog around with you and, and point to it whenever you want to indicate a dog. Also, the word dog is universal, so it can refer to any dog. Right? If you carry around a dog and you point to it, the person you're trying to communicate with might not know whether you mean, you mean all dogs or, or just this, this one that you're carrying around. In the analogy of the word in love, word means the concept that you produce in your intellect. The key here is that the concept is a likeness of the thing known. You see, it's a sign of that thing, as we said. How does this work? How do we produce a concept? Okay, so here you, you, we're going to do a little climbing. In the act of knowing, we can distinguish four things. I gave you that on the outline. The thing known, right? That's so you know this thing. The act of knowing, which is in you. Then the intelligible form. The intelligible, yeah, it's called a form. That is abstracted by the intellect. And then lastly, the concept itself, which is the form expressed in the intellect. So here's an analogy. In corporeal seeing, a likeness of the thing is in the eye, right? A representation of thing, the thing made of light. Like if an if a eye doctor looked in your eye, you could see it, right? It'd be upside down, it'd be really tiny, but it'd, be, it'd, be, it'd look exactly like the thing you're looking at, right? In your eye. You could say it is a representation of the thing made of light. Right? It's a likeness of the thing made of light. Now, the thing itself is not in your eye. Like a, if you're looking at a stone, if the, if, the, if the stone were in your eye, you'd need a doctor. You wouldn't, you wouldn't see anything, right? So you need 
this in a different order. You need it to be in the order of light. The thing is translated into the order of light. It's a stone made of light. Okay. In intellectual vision, a likeness of the thing is in the intellect. Okay. A representation of the thing made of idea. Okay. That's, that's my language, not Aquinas's. Right. But so, so the thing itself is not in the intellect, but how could a stone be in the intellect? The intellect is a spiritual power, immaterial. The thing, the stone or whatever you're knowing, is translated into the order of knowledge. It's a stone made of knowledge. Whatever you know, you have a likeness now in the immaterial realm. Now we know the thing, not the concept, right? The concept is that through which we know. Okay, like a window. You look through the window to the thing outside. You're not looking at the window. So human beings live in two orders, the material and the immaterial. We are created to know material things, but in the immaterial order. So we see triangles made out of plastic, and we produce the idea of a triangle that's immaterial and indestructible. Right? If you destroyed all the triangles in the universe, if I've seen one, I'd still be able to think of it. Because I, I have, I have a, an immaterial a, a concept of a triangle. So concepts come through material beings, but the concepts themselves, being immaterial, are, are indestructible, right? They, they don't corrupt, incorruptible. Borrowing Aristotle's account, Aquinas explains that we first come into contact with an object in the world through our five senses, right? So we're not created with infused knowledge. We get it through the senses. From that combined data through the senses, the imagination produces a distilled image. Philosophers call that a phantasm, in case you're familiar with that. And then our agent intellect, you could say the, the agent, the acting part of the intellect, which is like a light, shines on this image. That's in the imagination. Translating it into the immaterial order as a likeness. Okay, or, or an intelligible form of the thing that you have sensed. This likeness is then expressed in the what Aquinas calls the possible intellect as a concept or idea. So you can go, this is amazing, you encounter things through your five senses and you produce that thing made of idea. Astonished. How, how can you see? That's what animals can't do. You have a universal concept. You produce this thing. It's now made of idea. So to visualize the agent intellect, if you, if you wanted to, you could think of a light shining on a stained glass window and projecting the image on the wall behind it. Now, we only have one intellect, and the act of knowledge is one, but we can analyze them in, in terms of, of act and potency. Aristotle did and Aquinas did. So we speak of agent, the acting part of it, and the possible intellect, the one that is like receives and expresses the, the, the concept. Well, it receives the, the likeness and expresses the concept. So the external object understood resides in the intellect, how? As a likeness. The concepts that the intellect produces are likenesses of the thing known. So you are loaded with, with likenesses of everything, everything you know, you have, you have all these likenesses in your intellect. How then, all this hard work, so how then does the analogy of the word and love apply to the Trinity? Well, the word of God spoken of in John's gospel is the Father's concept of himself. That is, in knowing himself, the divine essence, God the Father produces a word or a concept of himself, which is a likeness 
of the thing known, the divine essence. He produces what? A likeness of the divine essence. That's what he's knowing. This is the word. This is the son. The father's act of knowledge is so rich, so definitive, so productive that the concept produced in the intellect is a whole other living self who is the divine essence, right? So we produce a likeness. We don't produce another dog in knowing, in knowing a dog. We produce a likeness, right? As I say, an idea. The father's knowledge is so productive, it produces a whole other self. The concept is a likeness of the thing known, as we said. In this case, of God's case, the likeness is so like the original that it is everything that the original is except for being the original itself. Now, this is a mystery, so think about that. You can ponder this for all eternity, right? As Aquinas writes, the son is everything that the father is except the father himself. He's not a mere likeness of the divine essence. He is the divine essence. That's how perfect a likeness he is. He's not a likeness like a copy. He, he is the divine essence. He cannot be another divine essence, for there can only be one. And anything that is not simply the divine essence is not God. Now, we might even appeal to our own experience to try to lay hold of this mystery. So it's very satisfying when you, we can express ourselves fully and powerfully. Right when we can pour ourselves out in words, and maybe this is more happens more when you're really angry or really animated. Right, you 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 it's satisfying. You can say that's just what I mean. Right, in fact, and it's frustrating when we can't make ourselves understood. Right, you you try, and like you know, especially if in another language, you know, you just can't make it. Or in your own language, and people say, "Was this what you mean?" You're like, "No, that's the, no." You're, it, it's it's frustrating. So we try to express ourselves in so many words that evaporate into the air and die quickly. Or like. How long are you going to remember what I said? I've been talking for, you know, 40 minutes. You're going to say, what did that guy say? So we try, right? So many words. And, 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 and you know, actually, they're effective. That's, that's good. But by contrast, the Father speaks one word from all eternity. And it's such a powerful, full, definitive self-expression. It's a whole other within God. The only distinction between the two is that the Father speaks and the Word is spoken. That's the only way the Son is distinct from the Father. That He comes from the Father by way of intellect. He proceeds in the divine intellect. Uh, otherwise, they're, 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 they're both fully the divine essence. The Son is so similar to the Father that He's not a second copy, right? Like as another God, but He is another within the original. As we read in Hebrews, the Son is the reflection of God's glory and the exact likeness of God's being. You see, so, so here is, as I say, the mystery escapes us, but this gives us some intellectual purchase on, on, on what's there. And again, don't, don't worry if, if it's like, you're like, what? I'm still, yes, yes, ponder it, think about it. But this is, we have some way to an analogy by which to, to think about and bring these principles in the tension together. Okay, so how about the Holy Spirit? We just noted that in the act of knowing, the intellect produces a likeness of the thing known, right? Through which it knows that thing. So, so we know through likenesses. That is, the known is in the knower through a likeness. But how is the beloved in the lover? Also through a likeness? No, the will does not produce a likeness of the object willed, the will, says Aquinas, produces 
an inclination toward the thing willed. And, and isn't that your experience? You're driven toward the thing you love. You have an inclination toward the thing loved. You could describe the will as producing an impulse, an impulse toward the beloved object. The love of the father and the son for themselves and each other is so rich, definitive, and productive that the impulse produced in the divine will is a whole other living self who is the divine essence. The impulse, the inclination, is so full of the beloved that it is everything that the lover is except for the lover itself. The Holy Spirit is such a profound impulse of the Father and the Son that he's the divine essence no less than the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit can be thought of as the mutual love of the Father and the Son because he proceeds from them as uniting them in love. He is their infinite mutual inclination for each other in person. See, that, that's it. So I, and I say, ponder this, meditate on it. This analogy illustrates the language of Scripture. What proceeds as a word in the intellect is a concept, an intellectual conception. And what are conceived? Children are conceived. Sons are conceived. Spirits aren't. So the Son, and not the Spirit, is the eternal word conceived in the Father's intellect. So as we read in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Father begets the Son. And what proceeds as an impulse in the divine will is, is a driving inclination, an inclination that drives one strongly toward the beloved. And there we find in Scripture, Acts 2, 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly they, there came from heaven a noise like a strong driving wind. And it filled the house in which they were, and there appeared to them tongues of fire dis distributed and resting on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? And they began to speak in, in other tongues. The Father and the Son breathe forth the Holy Spirit. To use Aquinas' language, they, they spirate the Spirit. So one is impelled, we say, to, by love to perform an action. So you see impulse there. We say that people are inspired to do great deeds and that love gives rise to aspirations. So this analogy elutes, el elucidates Scripture powerfully. We have the, the Son is the Word proceeding in the divine intellect. The Holy Spirit is this impulse, this inclination proceeding in the divine will. We could also note that love has an ecstatic character. So knowledge is, in the, is the known in us, right, as a likeness. So, so, so we have a likeness in us. Love, by contrast, is our being drawn out of ourselves toward the thing loved. So here there's no, it's not a likeness, but an impulse or inclination toward the beloved. So the son's personality is to be a word of knowledge. The conceived truth, the fruit of the intellect, right? So when you're addressing the Son, this is who you're talking about. When Christ, in his divine nature, this is, this is who it is. He is the perfect likeness to the Father, and for that reason, he bears the name Image. That's one of his proper names. Christ, to quote Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And it's the Holy Spirit's personality to be an impulse of love, a fire 
or affection breathed forth as the fruit of the will, driving one toward the beloved, driving the lover toward the beloved. So that's when you address the Holy Spirit, that's, that's who you're talking to. The one who has the characteristic, not of a likeness, I mean, he's, he's the essence, no, no less than the father and son, so of course he's like the father and the son, but his property, his personality is not likeness as on account of knowledge, it's, it's an impulse, it's driving, it's how the beloved is in the lover. This analogy also shows the order of processions. We cannot love what we do not know. So love proceeds from knowledge. You know something and you have a volitional response to it. And so we gain some insight into the fact that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Son doesn't proceed from the Holy Spirit, right? So the Son proceeds by way of knowledge, the Holy Spirit by way of love. So yeah, there, it makes, well, there it goes, it lines up. The Spirit proceeds from the Son. Now, how about the Father's personality? He's the one from whom the Son and the Spirit proceed and to whom we are led back. He's more hidden in a certain way. This would be, so I'm, I can see I'm going to have to, uh, we'll, we'll, we can leave the missions for the question period, but the, the Father is, is, yes, more hidden. He's the one who is the principal of the other two and we're led back to him. Okay, so if I say one, one uh, thing about the missions, just really quickly. So there are visible missions and invisible missions. The visible mission of the Son is Christ, the incarnation. Christ comes, he's visible. The visible missions of the Holy Spirit, the, the fathers of the church counted four of them. So the, uh, the dove at the, the baptism, right? You also have the Christ breathes on the, on the apostle, says, if you forgive men's sin, they receive the Holy Spirit. So that's another visible mission of the Holy Spirit. We have the cloud of the transfiguration. Remember when the, at the transfiguration, they're enveloped by a cloud at the end. And the cloud and the last is what I already said, the dove. What's that? Oh, of course, the most obvious one, thank you. The tongues of fire at Pentecost. Yes, yes. Visible, a visible mission. So these are visible. And then the invisible missions are, are in grace. The, the Spirit and the Son are sent in grace. And they produce gifts in us. So the Son proceeds by way of wisdom. So he comes as a gift of wisdom. The Holy Spirit comes as a gift of love. And so they conform us to themselves. Grace conforms us to the Son and to the Spirit on account of these gifts which resemble them. So what do you mean resemble them? The Son proceeds by way of, of knowledge, as we just said. So when we have a gift that, uh, is, is, that is this knowledge, it's, it's, you could say, shaped like it. it. It's by exemplar causality, if you want to be technical. It has the characteristic, the shape of the Son. So that gives us a proper share in the Son's relation to the Father. And the Spirit who proceeds by way of love that is his characteristic. The son does not proceed that by, by way of love, but by way of knowledge. Gives us this, this love proceeding from the word. Gives us a share in the spirit's relation to the father and the son. So the father, there's no gift we receive that gives us, that, that has because of the shape of the father. It, because he doesn't proceed. So he's present wherever the other two are present. Of course, they're one will and one intellect, perfect unity, one God. But he's not sent. So he's the one to whom we're led back. So he is, as I said, you can be more hidden. It all starts with him and we're led back to him. 
So that's how we, how we come to know him, is that, that we're led back to him. So I'm going to stop there and take questions. Uh, and let's see, do I want to say anything else? Aquinas does talk about experiential knowledge, that you can, you can taste this relationship. And now you, you could tell me, is that your experience? But with some, with meditation and I mean, you know, the mystics certainly do this, but, but even that, that we should, as a baptized, studying, pondering uh, the revelation that we can begin to, you can, you can, we, we address the persons when we know about their distinct personalities, that we can, we can taste a difference, what we can, we can experience a difference. Okay, so uh, that's good. So let's, let's end there. I'll, I'll take questions. That's probably a good way to, so let me start over here. Yes. Christ and the Spirit dwelling in us, but what about the Father? Okay, yes. So the Father does dwell in us, but not as being sent. So the Father, as as St. Thomas would say, comes, but he gives himself, but he's not sent. So because there's no, it follows the order of processions. Since the Son comes from the Father, the Son is sent by the Father. Jesus says it in the Gospels, so visibly and invisibly. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son, Jesus says in John's Gospel, as, as we read, 1526, right? Uh, I will send you another paraclete. The, uh, the, the Father will send him in my name. So, uh, but the Father, you could say, has no one to send him. He, he's unoriginate. But he comes in grace. And you also, the persons are inseparable. You can't have one without having all three. They're distinct. You can address them distinctly. You can explain to experience their, their personalities distinctly, but you can't have, have any one without the other. And every created effect, every, everything God does in the, in the created order has to be done by all three because it's an act of God. If, if, if two or only one did it and the other two didn't, they wouldn't be God, right? So anything dealing with creatures has to be all three. So even this, this gets, you could say there are some wrinkles with, with Christ. So all three, so, so only the Son has a human nature, but all three persons united the human nature just to the Son. And everything, so, but all three persons preserve that human nature and being. All three persons, all the operations have to be all three persons. So the Father does come to dwell, but he comes to dwell as the one who sends the other two. The other come to dwell as sent, yeah, by the Father and this Holy Spirit as by the Father and the Son. Yeah. Someone over here, please. Zachary, you have to wait. You, 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 <laughs> you asked it. And he keeps it. He's, he's been classy. He's... Okay, I didn't quite. So how how in your how practically the, do, does the distinction show up? Yeah. So, okay, good. So so yeah, concretely, how does how does this show up in in your spiritual life? Yeah. So the so first of all, it, it's true. This is how God is, 
And this is the God who loves us and creates us. And this is also our life. The, 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 the greatest knowledge we could have and what we're headed for in beatitude is, is to know God. So by knowing, so, so it shows up by, first of all, so knowing who they are and their distinction and then, and, 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 and addressing them. And then when you say concretely, then, um, I mean, it can depend on the person, right? That you, if you, the more you know, the, 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 deeper, the deeper spiritual life you have, the, the, the richer that is, the more you come to know about God, the more you're conformed to, to God, the, the deeper your happiness, the more, uh, yeah, the closer you, you, you become. Okay, so when you say concretely, so, yeah. Is that, did you have a specific, like concretely as in, yes, so that um, God saves us through, by appealing to our, our intellects, right? You could, it'd be not, you could say, Lord, just, just save me. Don't ask me. Don't, you know, I mean, don't, don't, it's risky actually, right? This is, it's, God's, God's going to reveal himself, give us an invitation to faith. And I might say, no, 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 no. just save me. Don't ask me because I mean, what if I have, well, I could, I could blow this. I mean, are you kidding? This is, the Lord says, no, 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 no. I, I made you in my image and I want you to be converted. I, I'm going to, to try, invite you. I'm not going to force you. I'm going to reveal myself to you and say, come, come live with me. Repent of your sins and come live with me. So, the, so concretely you say, it, you, you come to know God. You come to know Christ who reveals the Father and you come to understand he sent the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit makes him intelligible. So uh, in your prayer, so, so how would it show up? I'd say in your prayer life, in your understanding of God, you could also then start to see, you know, other, I mean, it's, there's no, there's no limit, limit on, on how you, on insights you could have. But um, is that good enough or did you have a? Yeah, okay, great, great. Yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So the good. So yeah. So what is what is the um, how does the the incarnation change our relationship to the Son? And did it, did it have to be the sun? Why did it have to be the sun? So let me start with the second one. Aquinas would say, so if, if something's not contradictory, it's not beyond God's omnipotence. So Aquinas says, and almost could sound irreverent, but he's just taking a hypothetical question. It wouldn't be beyond, be beyond God's omnipotence for another person to have become flesh, right? In fact, two of the persons could have become a human being, in fact, seven or eight human beings. And you're like, oh, that's what? But so that'd be possible. But it's most fitting that the son alone take a human nature and, and only one. And how, what do you mean it's most fitting? Well, that's, that's what he did. That's the most perfect. So to answer your question, so it didn't have to be that way, but it's most fitting. And then, you, and then we can also, this is another thing about theology. We, right, we don't, we don't, we can't see it from the inside to say, how it had to be, so we can only, it's for us to reflect on it and find all the fitting ways, right? That it's fitting for the Son who is sent by the Father and who sends the Holy Spirit to, to, to take human flesh and not the others. But we can't say it, it couldn't be. We would just say, oh, it, it makes sense. 
this is how God did it. It, it, it makes a lot of sense. How does it change our relationship? Yeah, so we can relate to this person because he has human nature. So that, that's, that's, a, that's a huge, you could say, uh, point of access or, or a, a, mode, his, his, a mode in which we can come to know this person. Uh, St. Thomas describes Christ's human nature as, as an instrument, who's a conjoined instrument, because, you know, so Christ raises Lazarus from the dead. Only God can raise from the dead. That's right. So Christ in his human nature, so is it just Christ is saying, come out, Lazarus, and God's doing it, and it's kind of just coincidentally, with, as he says it in his human nature, God's really doing it behind the scenes. No. It's God the Son acts through his human nature. In other words, it's through the human nature that this takes place. You say, well, that human nature doesn't have the power. No, okay, but instrumentally. So, so his divinity is the principal power, but he's doing it through his human nature. So it's actually through the human nature. It has a human touch. It's done through human words, even though, so divine power can be expressed and can use this instrument. So by knowing Christ in his flesh is, also that just, it's, it's so much, you know, it's, it's uh, more intimate, it's more accessible. I, say. I mean, I think that's intuitive. So, so that's how, and, and he gives us the sacraments. And we, we also, you know, it's easier to have pictures of him, right? Otherwise we, we visualize the other persons, but I mean, it's kind of hard, but it's nice to have a human being. You're like, oh, wow, that's okay. So that's the side. So yeah, so it gives us access and, and the other persons could have become incarnate. Please. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Yeah, wow, very good. So you're you're do you study theology better? Yeah, okay, I was gonna say you're you're it's, it's so he's so the the son is generated, the spirit aspirated, but they receive the divine essence. And you can hesitate the first time you see this verb receives. I mean they're they're God, how can they produce it? Yeah, they receive the divine essence. And then do they go back to the father? And if they do, if the son loves the father, does he get some he's he's loved, so does he get something he didn't have before? Okay. So Aquinas says that the, they're, they're, the, the sun's being generated, the Holy Spirit's being spirated. There's no passivity. If there's any passivity, they wouldn't be God. There can be no potency, no change. They receive the divine essence. They're, for, for us, when you have a cause and an effect, right? The effect depends on the cause and it's, it's subordinate to, the, to the, the cause in some way. When the son is generated, the father's, act, the father's act is generation. The son's action is being born. That's an act. That's an action. We, why do we use a passive verb? Well, because that's all, that's all we've got. You could say the weakness, he says, the weakness is on, in our language, not in God the son. So 
you have this activity where the son receives the divine essence, but it's an action on his part. And there is, there's no other, there's, there's, there could be no other way. Receives without passivity. You say, but that's impossible. But well, among creatures, sure. Because if you're getting it, you're, you're depending on, I mean, you're not, you're not, you're, you're, it's passive. <clears throat> In God, there's no passivity. So you have an order without priority. <clears throat> you have the son receiving the divine essence, and that's an action on his part. We speak of a notional action. The spirit receives the divine essence from the father and the son when he's spirated. And here the language actually can work a little better. We, we could say he, was, he's, he is being spirated, but we can also say he proceeds. So there you have an, an active verb. It helps a little bit maybe to visualize it. But so that's an, an action on his part. The other, the, 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 the return is, is very interesting because when I first saw that, I thought, oh, it's just talking about his human nature. He goes back to the father. But Aquinas does take language from St. Hilary and speak of a circulation, exactly what you said, so that the spirit leads us to the son who leads us back to the father. So we're led back to the father. But are the spirit and the son, do they go back to the father? Are they led back to the father? He doesn't, he, he repeats that language. So that's not, he doesn't come up with it, but he allows for Hillary says it. And he's like, he, he goes along with it. So there, I think the easiest thing is just what you said, circular. Think of the procession as, as circular. The, the son's proceeding, but it's, it's, it's circular. He's from the father, but he's within the father. It's, it's, it's going back. Does the father receive, get anything back? The son loves the father. So does the father get something he didn't already have? That, that'd be impossible because it all starts with him. If he, there's nothing he doesn't have. If, if, he, if he got something he didn't have before, he wouldn't be God because, and, and they, all three persons have a problem because he'd be like, he'd be like hey, wait, where did that come from? I thought I, 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 thought I, I was, it's like, I, no. So what Aquinas says is uh, the, the, the father is the object of the son's love. So the son's act of love terminates in the father, but that's not giving the father anything in the real order. It's just, you could say it's, 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 the, it's our, in the logical order, the, the, the son, the, the father is the object of the son's love. So it makes sense. You could say the father receives the son's love, receives in, in, the, in, the, in the order of understanding. That's how, that's how that's intelligible. That's how we should talk about it. But in the real order, this father can't receive anything from anyone. Otherwise he wouldn't be, God. I mean, where's he getting it from? You know I mean? It's like he's, he's infinite being. And then he's like, but, but plus there's, there's other things that, that he wished that he's he surprised to, 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 to get. No, nothing. He can't, he can't receive anything from anyone. Absolutely, that would be a problem. We have, yeah, please. Um, my question is kind of in regards to like, the real presence. So, like, like you have the presence in the Eucharist, the priest, the body of Christ, and the gospel. So, the idea of, uh, okay, you cannot separate the one person from the other. I can say two more guys in my life. So, how would you describe or yeah so in the sacrament so so how is christ present in the, the sacrament the, the the blessed sacrament or when he's two or three people pray he's there among you or in in the in the minister as vatican II refers to or or the, the proclamation of the word god is christ is present okay so 
In the sacrament, Christ is sacramentally present. It's a body and blood, soul and divinity. So that is a real presence in, in a much stronger sense. And you mentioned the other two persons. So how are they present? Well, because where the Son is, the Father and the Holy Spirit are. So only the Son took human nature to himself. Only the Son makes the Eucharist into his own body and blood. The others don't have a body, right? It's joined to them. So, but where, they, where he is, the other two persons are. So they're there on account of, of the unity of the divine essence. But, but the, the, the Son has a body, and, and the Eucharist is con, uh, changed into the body of, of the Son. So it's, it's Christ's body and blood, soul and divinity. But where the Son is, the Holy Spirit and, and the Father are. Okay, yes, and in the other is through grace. So, so in, in the minister, in, in, in two or three people praying, you could say, how is, how is the Lord there? In, in, in grace, so, so through the divine missions in, in, in the persons. Um, in the proclamation, it's, you could say, right, it's, it's the revelation. It's, it's his, it's his uh, he's present in, in, in the truth being revealed, right? So, so he's, he, because God is the, is the principal author of scripture, so this is unique to the scriptures, uh, for, in, is that God uses human instruments but that those are but to accomplish to 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 communicate his message, despite their biases, they're acting freely. They like they didn't just fall into a trance and wake up and like, hey, look at that, you know, or like that's my handwriting. No, they 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 wrote it. They had they were had an inspiration. They wrote, but it's inspired in the sense that God is the primary author. So when that's proclaimed, God God is speaking. You could say God is present. So in in, in by by as the author of this message. Well, take a... Go ahead. Yeah, so how do you evangelize non-Catholics on the Eucharist? Yes, well, John 6. But really, it's, it's, uh, it comes down to ecclesiology also because, so if you, John 6 is, is just, how, how, it's clear. I mean, the people who didn't, who didn't accept, they're saying, well, how can we, he give us his flesh and blood to eat? He let them leave, right? So it couldn't be more emphatic. He says it several times. This is my, you know, whoever does not uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood has no life in him. So if, if you read it, you, you have to argue for also. So you could say the more honest, honest Protestant position is, well, the church was corrupt. But once those issues are addressed, will we come back? Right. So if you don't have the tradition of reading, how can the Bible be? You have you have. You know, three people writing, reading the Bible and three different interpretations. How do we know which one's right? Well, if, if Jesus instituted a church and says to the apostles, go teach and preach in my name, you, you need to read the scriptures in the tradition, like what, how the apostles understood it and how that's given to the church. And, and St. Paul, like, so the opposite of sola scriptura, right? If the sola scriptura, scripture alone, that doctrine appears nowhere in the Bible. On the other hand, Paul says in several places, Maintain the traditions I passed on to you. So, if so, you have to. So, I would say uh, appeal to 
how the scriptures have to be read. Because if you if you read it correctly, John 6, it's in it's in the bag. I mean, I mean it's just there, it couldn't be clearer. Yeah, we have a couple more, but we're 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 running out of time. So please. Okay. One person behind, and then I'll, I'll, I'll get, we'll, we'll take your question. No, no, we'll get your question. Go ahead. Yeah, so, so how does Hegel, so... Is the is the circularity? If you think of the the procession, does that in any way um, accord with uh, Hegel's understanding? So, for but for Hegel, you have the the the, the thesis, the the antithesis, and the synthesis, right? That's that's not at all what the Trinity has, because in in the Trinity you have you also refer to what was the the opposite of being? You had indetermination. The, the for God, the it's it is sheer being and intelligibility, you could say nothing more determined. Now, it's, when we talk about it, it's hard for us to lay hold of it, so, so we, that could make it seem like it's, it's hard for us to determine, right? But it would be opposite in that way. It's not indeterminate. That is interesting. It's like Taoism also goes with that, and they're, they're uh, right, is it, does, is it, is it non-being? Is it is sheer being? So for Requina, it's very clear. It's sheer being. And there's not a... Um, yeah, these opposites. There are there are opposite relations that are opposed. That, that's that's what we end up. We do use language of, of opposition and talking about. So the son proceeds from the father, so he's related as son, and the and the father's related to the son as father. Those are opposed relations. So that that's how you can talk about distinction. We're just looking for some words to talk about distinction. Okay. So, but Hegel would be pretty far away there in sort of the opposite in terms of in. Indeterminacy, because um, if you want to use Aristotelian terms, matter is indeterminate and can become anything. God doesn't become anything. It's the opposite. He is everything. He couldn't be. He can't change. Not because he's like like stuck or or inert, but because he's already everything that could possibly be. So um, yeah. So that 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 would be there. There are Trinitarian things where you where you have three and where you have. Uh, uh, you know, various principles that, that you could find some parallels in, but it's not a circularity of indeterminacy or um, opposites in that way, uh, unless you wanted to talk about opposite relation. But yeah. Okay, Zachary, why don't we end with your question? Um, like you like kind of practical questions in a sense. So, um, you know, it seems like hyperdimensional liturgy are very informative, even just having our experience as Christians, um, teaching us about faith. So, where's the liturgy can we find personal relationships in both? I was thinking, for instance, like, it seems like the Our Father is very clearly oriented to the Lord. They're all held in the name, they're all, you know, kingdom, etc., power. But then, like, with, uh, with the Mass, um, it seems like the Father is. When the name Father is given there, it definitely seems like it's invoking the, the, the person of the Father. Mm -hmm. um, so, could you maybe say a few words about what insight do you draw from liturgy about the personal relations between the Trinity and how much you, or personal, the person of the Trinity and how much you, 
Yeah. So how does the literature show our, our uh, addressing the, the persons distinctly? Good. So um, he said one interesting thing, and he's because he studies theology, he's, he's a little ahead on Aquinas here. The Our Father, actually, Aquinas says, is directed to all, all three persons. God, the Father, as, as all three persons. Why? Because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have a paternal relationship to us. And if you look at the Our Father, right, who forgives our sins? Who gives us our daily bread? Who protects us, who leads us, protects us from temptation and leads us away from evil? All three persons, right? That the Son doesn't forgive sins? Yeah, we just looked at, at quotations where the, the Son and the Spirit forgive sins. And, and also, it's not the Son who's praying this, you know, forgive us our sins, right? The Son doesn't have sins. He doesn't pray that. So he's teaching us. And in fact, if you look clearly in Scripture, he says, when you pray, say. Okay, so the, our Father, you could say, wouldn't, wouldn't be an easy example to point to. You say, so where in the liturgy do we find it? And you already hinted at it. So one in, in, in so the divine office, but also in the mass, the, the prayers end by addressing the Father in this name of the Son, and so through the Son, through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, in, in the Holy Spirit and the unity of the Holy Spirit. So right there you have, it's addressed to the Father, through the Son and the Spirit. And how about just think of the Mass, if you listen, it's addressed to the Father. The priest is telling the Father what the Son is doing in the Holy Spirit. That's what's, a, so he's not, it can sound like he's talking to you. No, no, listen to what he's, he's, he's addressing the Father and he's saying, in fact, when he gives the words of institution, he's, he's saying, this is what Christ did. And who's he talking to? The Father. Because he says, your son. The, 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 whose son is it? The Father's son. So, so the liturgy, the Mass is, is, you could say, deeply, radically, is Trinitarian addressing the persons. So, so we're there as, as the whole assembled community, and, and, and God the Father is being addressed uniquely, which is, you know, an awesome privilege and even terrifying. God, God the Father, is be, we're repeating the words of the Son. And we're saying, and also if you want to go back to the Old Testament, you know, please don't, please don't kill us. Please, you know, we're, we're, I, I'm, can I talk to you? You know, that's why we begin with the penitential, right? It makes sense because, I mean, even though we're, as Christians, we have to be careful because we become familiar. And, and, and thank God, right? So Christ is so kind to us, so intimate. We're like, oh yeah, God's my buddy. Well, okay, yes and no. Be careful, right? So uh, he is a judge, and also we, we can lose, you lose something in your devotion if when, you, when we don't, when we lose track of God's majesty, his omnipotence. So, so yes, this, the Mass would be a, a clear one. And as I say, also in, in private prayer, I mean, there are, there are litanies and, and novenas to, to each of the persons. But the Mass would be, would be the clearest and most powerful for that. Well, well, good. Um, in to kind of orient us in, in nature's call. Could you just tell us what is the one thing that you hope you take away from a call in a personal relationship? Yeah, what's the one thing you should take away? That the persons have distinct, that they're, they're distinct. They are each totally God, but they are, they are distinct. They have these personalities. They're, they're distinct persons. And the son's personality is a word of knowledge, and the Spirit's personality is an impulse of love. So when you have that, then that's every time you come across the reading scripture, when you're praying in private, when you're at mass, you, you have, when you address these persons, you have some, you're like, oh, this is the, this is, 
the one who proceeds as the word of knowledge, who's a likeness to the Father. Or he's like, oh, wow, this is the one who is the beloved, who unites the Father and the Son. He's this driving impulse. That's what I'd say. So you, so you, you can affirm that each is totally God, one life, one, in, one intellect, one will, but you understand they're distinct. Each one, to go back to Zachary's question, says I distinctly, more credibly than any of us would say I am. And that they have these these person the distinct personality, and the, and that you now you have some way to think about how that is. Yeah. yeah.